This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. On this week's Money and Markets podcast, we'll be digging into the market reaction to Apple's first new product launch in almost a decade. We'll also be talking about British American tobacco and why it's struggling to find its way as consumers go tobacco-free. With me this week is Danny Hewson. Hi, Dan. We're also going to look at a big crackdown on crypto exchanges by US regulators, the cyber breach that's impacting businesses from British Airways to the BBC, and mixed signals from the US about whether the country is really heading for recession. Plus, with improving savings rates, if you're happy to lock up your cash for a year or more, I'll be looking at which FTSE 350 companies are offering you equally or even better dividend yields. We'll also hear from Nigel Newton, the boss of Bloomsbury Publishing, about whether the pandemic book craze is still going strong. And we'll look at the UK construction sector, which is doing pretty well, unless you're a house builder. Should we kick off with big tech and that Apple announcement, Danny? Yeah, I was really excited by this. I'm sorry, but I get quite geeky about these kind of things. And clearly, investors were excited about the potential as well, because let's think about it. We're in a cost of living crisis. If you've already got a handset, you know, a phone or, you know, you've got a laptop or you've got an iPad or something like that, chances are you're not going to upgrade. But if there's something new and exciting, well, that is a fantastic opportunity to make some cash. And shares did shoot up to an all time high on Monday ahead of this product launch. Um, however, what we saw was it climbed up as much as uh, 2.2% at one point, reaching a peak of $184.95, which su- uh, it surpassed the um, previous peak set in January of 2021. But I think it's fair to say that the excitement was a bit short-lived in terms of investors because um, we saw shares actually fall about 3% in later trading uh, and actually ended up at a 0.8% loss for the day, uh, approximately. Now, I wonder what the reason for that was. There are lots of people pointing to the fact that the headset, first of all, it's not going to be available until early next year. Second, the price tag, three and a half thousand dollars. Would you pay three and a half thousand dollars for one of these, Dan? Not sure I'd pay three and three hundred pounds for it. I don't know. (laughs) I don't think I'm the right target market. But yeah, it it is expensive. But you know, Apple is not known for being cheap, though, is it? No, and particularly when it launches new products. I mean, if you think about things like the iPad. I really, really wanted an iPad for a lot of years, but I just refused to pay for one until the price came down to a point where I felt comfortable. And potentially that's what we're going to see here. And there has been an awful lot of debate about this so-called mixed reality headset. It it looks a bit like a pair of ski goggles, don't you think? Yes, it does. And you, you do look a bit ridiculous wearing them. So I think immediately to me, it's like, well, Apple's come up with this great gadget, but, you know, people like to, uh, you know, particularly these days, like to know that, you know, what they're, what they're wearing, what they look like is good. And I don't know, do you look like a bit of a Wally wearing these? <laughs> Can you imagine holding a meeting 
with everybody in their meeting room wearing these things in order that you can communicate. I mean, at the moment, people huddle around a computer screen. So I, I can see where the potential is. I find it a bit weird that apparently you can still see somebody's eyes when they're wearing these things. I'm not sure if I find that better or worse, but some of the discussions about some of the ways that this can be used, it sounds brilliant. You know, I mean, if you imagine being able to fully immerse yourself back in your kid's birthday party, as long as you've actually taken the video footage using this bit of kit, you can almost be right back in there again. It feels like you are part of that. So I can imagine going forward, this could be something that that is does really become part and parcel of our lives in in the same way that uh, I bet very few people expected that, you know, a phone in their pocket would eventually mean that you wouldn't have to carry a calendar or a torch or, you know, a, a radio or, you know, your credit cards. Things do change. And Apple is really, really good at figuring out how to take a product and make it something that we need, not just something that we want, but something that we need. And there's been a lot of discussion this week off the back of this about the metaverse and whether or not Apple's sort of foray into this realm has given the metaverse almost, it feels more grown up now Apple's got involved. And for so long, it's... Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about it, obviously renamed um, the Facebook uh, brand Meta. And I think a lot of investors have been really nonplussed by the whole thing because they've not really sort of figured out what it's all about. And maybe Apple's been quite smart here because they've gone for very much the the business um, side of things. So how you can use an app to, you know, learn how to do some kind of surgery or to really get into a building structure if you're an architect or just use all those apps that you use day to day, but in a much more intuitive and immersive way. So, you know, clearly Apple has been incredibly good at at spotting those trends and then making money off it. That said, the anticipation is that during the first year on the market, it will sell approximately 150,000 headsets. Now, when you figure that it sold 55 million smartphones in the first three months of this year, it does kind of suggest that this is going to be a really slow burn. And I think that is possibly part and parcel of the reason that we saw shares shoot up and then sort of tumble back down again, because investors aren't sold 100% on the bit of kit, on the price, or when it's going to be launched. So it's, it's I think it's probably going to be a, a bit of a slow burn. But the fact that we finally have a new bit of kit in the first place is exciting. Yeah, I mean, Apple's got a sort of a, it's got quite, it's been quite smart with pricing in the, in the past. I don't know if you remember a while ago, the, the iPhones were already out, but it, it launched a gold-plated iPhone and it was it was really expensive and everyone's going well that's, that's so so pricey it got got lots of publicity and then it came out with some new pricing for the standard iPhones and everyone went oh look on on a relative basis that's so much more affordable 
than the gold-plated one. And actually, it was being very smart. You know, it didn't really want to sell the gold-plated ones. It just, you know, it, it's, it's changing people's perceptions of pricing. So everyone's going, okay, no, oh, iPhones, standard ones, great. Let's buy loads of those. So I think, yeah, it, it, you're right. It's going to be a slow burner, isn't it? And maybe it's just planting its flag in this space, saying, here you are, we've done this, we've, we've developed this, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll work to make enhancements and stuff. But um, yeah, I'm not surprised the market reaction was was the way it was because yeah I, I think it's just it is too early isn't it to really properly get your head around it but um it's it's good to see apple innovating again i think that perhaps you know be, there's been some suggestions it's been sort of lacking that recently but um yeah it, I, I sort of saw it with quite interest but yeah probably not for me to buy personally i'd like to try it um we clearly have not been sent a version to play with if they would like to send a version <laughs> to play with i'd be more than happy to you know tinker with it um, and I would be very interested, after all the comments, to try it out. But you also got to wonder, you know, how much further it can push the boundaries. If you think about what a smartphone was like when it started out, you wonder where this bit of kit is going to go, how immersive this mixed reality will ultimately be. And will sitting down as a family to watch a film ever be the same again? <laughs> Should we move on to British American tobacco? So th this is, you know, for years, this was very widely held in pension schemes, you know, a very popular stock because it paid generous dividends. The shares this year are down by about a fifth. Um, I think partially that's because the, the, the idea is, this is sort of known as a value stock. It's got, you're not expecting too much earnings growth from it, but it's it's seemingly reliable business. So it was all in fashion last year. This year, everyone's sort of switching back to growth and sort of tech names again. So um, it's kind of, it, what it does is slightly out of favor, but there's also this really increasing pressure from campaigners to clamp down on vaping. So we've got, it seems to be every week, there's something in the papers. The, the latest thing is children's doctors are saying, we're really worried here. Um, far too many children are, use, are, are, are vaping. We, something has to change. And so as a business, you know, British American Tobacco will have seen all these sort of regulatory sort of headwinds in, in many years in, in the past. And so I'm sure it's got a plan to do it. But, you know, it's had a change of chief exec recently. They've come out and said, well, you know, there's going to be no change to the strategy. Um, our tobacco sales in the US perhaps aren't as, as good as people are expecting. Um, we've got this sort of heated tobacco um, brand called Glow. That's not doing too well. And so you can understand an investor's going, well, Hang on a minute. I thought thought tobacco was meant to be sort of nice and boring and reliable, but oh, it, it just doesn't seem that way at the moment. And I think that it, it's only going to get harder for them. Um, I certainly see less people smoking in the street. Um, but equally, I see lots of people vaping, but I, I don't know. It just to, to me, it seems like the expectations for these sort of next generation products like vaping have just been too high. Um, and then sort of this this big adjustment for it. So. Anyway, it, it's yeah, it, it uh, it's it's going through troubles, and and the the new chief exec just didn't seem to tell the market what it wanted to hear, i.e., that everything was fine. Um, so yeah, certainly one to keep your eye on. Tobacco is is lots of people have a, a moral um, objection to wanting to invest in that space, and it's the same thing for the gambling sector as well. They don't like the idea that um, you know it, it can be connected to addiction. Um, people get caught up in it. And so 
there's, there's, there used to be lots of stocks in this space on, on the UK market, but it's been dwindling recently. But there's, there's a name that's just popped up again. Um, is Kenny Alexander. So he, he helped build up a business called GVC into a, a big player. And that's now better known as Entain. He left that business in 2020, but he's just popped up as, as part of a group of people, all used to be at GVC. And they've collectively bought 6.5% of the gambling firm 888. Now, you might know that business is the one that bought William Hill um, fairly recently. Now, that William Hill acquisition laden 888 with loads of debt, and the share price has been struggling. So it's now thought that, that Kenny Alexander's and sort of the consortium investors have come in and, and want to push for a change in leadership, a change in strategy. So the market got really excited. And, and as we're recording this podcast, the shares are up 20% in a day. So um, I think, you know, again, it's like a, a 888 was sort of a sort of a tired business, but perhaps one to one to keep your eye on. That, that segues nicely to what I'm going to talk about next, um, because in May, um, a report from a group of UK MPs called on cryptocurrencies to be regulated as a form of gambling. Fast forward to June, and we have had not one, but two cryptocurrency firms being sued by the US regulator, the SEC. The Securities and Exchange Commission is targeting firms that it thinks are bypassing regulation. So it's taken uh, Binance, the world's biggest crypto exchange and also Coinbase to task. Uh, and some of the charges are quite extraordinary. So when we're just looking at um, Binance, uh, 13 offences um, listed by the SEC, um, including uh, accused of unlawfully soliciting investors and customers, misrepresenting the amount of trading on the platform, misleading the public about oversight. Now, the company has said that they take the allegations seriously, denied the customer's money had been at risk. Uh, and this is a big company. Uh, it sponsors the Italian football team, Lazio, the Argentinian national team. It sponsors the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations tournament. It's got all kinds of investors, including a stake in Elon Musk's Twitter. But the SEC has been really bruised, I think, by the collapse of FTX, uh, another um, exchange uh, company which collapsed um, last year. Um, the founder, uh, the US national Sam Bankman-Fried, has been charged with security fraud, money laundering and, and other offences. And basically, the SEC, I think, is trying to figure out how to deal with some of these companies. I mean, I've heard people refer to sort of the cryptoverse as the sort of wild west of, of finance. And certainly these companies have been hyper aware of the headwinds um, that they face, the potential of regulation. And in fact, um, some people have, have referred to what's going on at the moment as a bit of a crypto winter with investment really drying up and regulators right around the world really looking to tighten up um, what happens with cryptocurrency, trying to protect people from losing their cash the same way that we saw during the collapse of FTX. Um, 
Coinbase is accused of uh, putting customers at risk by operating as an unregistered broker. But, you know, what is happening at the moment is is something of a standoff with cryptocurrency firms saying, well, actually, we don't fall into this regulation. And regulators saying, well, actually, maybe you do need to fall into this regulation. So we've had um, Coinbase's chief legal officer saying, um, you know, the solution here is legislation. It needs to be fair rules to develop, be developed transparency and then applied equally and not to go down this route of litigation. But failing that, I think the SEC really feels that it's kind of been backed into a corner and has to be seen to be really taking a look at this space in order to protect um, citizens who, who've got money in here. Um, there are big concerns about this sector, as as we've discussed before. And you won't be surprised that Bitcoin, um, obviously uh, one of the uh, most famous cryptocurrencies, uh, has also taken a bit of a tumble over the last few days as this sort of increasing regulatory headwind blows through. Should we talk about cash now? One thing that caught my eye is you can get more than 5% on a cash savings account if you're prepared to lock your cash away. Normally, if someone says that, they think, okay, you know, you, you're locking it away for sort of three or five years. But you only have to put it away for 12 months to get, um, you know, I was just looking, the best buys at the moment are Smart Save is paying 5.26%. Um, and National Bank of Egypt, UK is paying 5.25%. So th these are risk-free investments. And of course, that naturally leads people to say, well, why do I need to bother taking the risk of putting money into the markets when I can get more than 5% of cash? Obviously, the important thing here to, to bear in mind is obviously you've got the potential for capital gains and dividend growth if you're putting money into shares. Now, obviously, yes, there is the risk that you lose money as well. But um, you know, over the long term, Statistics show that equities have uh, considerably outperformed cash. But at the moment, I, I think investors are sort of you know, rightfully weighing up, you know, what should I do, cash or, or equities? You know, there's, there's no reason why you couldn't do a bit of both. But so I thought, okay, well, I wonder if, you know, given that you've got this competition in cash, if we take a look at stocks in the FTSE 350 index, I wonder how many of them are paying or have a prospective dividend yield of 5% or more. And it's a quarter of the FTSE 100 and 30% of the FTSE 250 have this. So that's a lot of companies. It's far higher than I thought there'd be. But just some, just a really important thing to consider here is that um, just because a stock is offering a prospective dividend yield of 5 or even 10% in some cases, that doesn't mean to say those dividends are reliable. Don't forget that dividends can be cancelled or, or, or cut at any point um, at the decision of managers. So I just think, you know, if you're looking at something, we talked about British American Tobacco earlier, they're on a dividend yield of 9.4%. That, that, you know, that's fine. If it's highly cash-generative business, one might take the assumption that, you know, they can afford to pay that sort of high generous dividend yield. But when you've got a weak share price, is that really something that you want to own? Same argument could be said for Vodafone, just over 9% prospective yield. So just if you're looking at this space, it's always worth digging into what's going on with the companies. And, and if they look like they're having a few struggles, you've got to take that into consideration when you're doing your, your sort of homework on, you know, kind of should I buy these shares or not? 
and not just the companies, I suppose, but also economic indicators. Because, you know, we've been discussing now for over a year about whether or not the UK, the US would head into recession. Um, I think all the debate about what's going on in the US got a bit lost amidst the debt ceiling woes, which now finally have been resolved. But there have been a number of indicators over the last few weeks that really suggest that the US might be headed for recession there. Yeah, I'll say that there's quite a few of them. The ones that stand out are latest manufacturing purchasing managers in indices. Um, this fell for the seventh straight month in a row. Um, sorry, let me do it again. That's correct. I mean, we, we've got various indicators here, including the the manufacturing PMI data. So uh, it, that fell to forty six point nine in May from forty seven point one in April. So you have to think anything below fifty indicates a, a contraction. Um, so we've now seen the seventh straight month in a row that's been below this fifty uh, sort of threshold. So that's the longest stretch of contraction in manufacturing since the global financial crisis. So. Um, uh, it's also interesting to see the wholesaler Costco, which is kind of like a really good benchmark for what's happening, people spending in the, in America. They were saying they've seen a real shift in shopping habits, and they say they, they, they're eerily similar to what they've seen in previous economic downturns. You know, customers aren't buying these big things like fridges and TVs. And, and for food, they're, they're switching from things like beef into pork and chicken and canned meat. And you, know, you, you might think that, okay, that's just a... A subtle shift in, in spending, but this is what people do when they're worried. It's, you know, they're trying to watch every every penny. So, um, if you if you look at uh, kind of all these sort of point you know, these signals, you can understand why um, that there is you know this is going on. And obviously, Danny, you must have seen a few more of these signals when you've been looking at the markets. Yeah, one that I really like is cardboard boxes. Um, it has preceded recessions in the past of falling demand for cardboard boxes. I mean, you can completely understand why. Um, also, tarmac is something which a lot of people point to as an indicator that we're either going into or coming out of recession. But we've had um, the Fibre Box Association um, has seen a drop in cardboard box demand, um, which they say is a really overlooked recession indicator. But when you're seeing the economy shrink and therefore less demand for cardboard boxes, for packaging, for distribution, there is something of a silver lining because typically these indicators lead inflation in the United States by about six months. So if you are seeing this shift down, it does tend to deliver the silver lining of softening inflation. And that is something clearly which is on the mind of a lot of market watchers at the moment. We get the latest US inflation figures next week ahead of the uh, Fed's next decision. And so yeah, look at the UK construction activity rising at the fastest pace in three months. Uh, that's been driven by commercial sector and you know civil engineering as well, also gaining momentum. Developers perhaps are thinking that the worst in the capital value falls are now behind us, and demand is recovering. So you know it's quite interesting here. You've got um, it's supply disruptions were an issue last year that seems to be sorting themselves out as well. So obviously that's helping to bring down 
um, sort of the, the cost pressures that we've seen in, in construction. And so I think you, know, you just need to look at some of the construction companies that are on the stock market. They've been having a really good time. So things like Volution, Morgan, Sindel, Genuit, these are all double digit share price increases so far this year. So um, and I think this is interesting because people, if people think, okay, you know, construction activity, um, it must be terrible if we look at the house building sector. But you know, it, 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 but it's not quite that case, is it, Danny? No, I mean the the, the house building sector um, activity did contract last month at the fastest pace since the first COVID lockdown three years ago. And you know, I mean, the property market's really been laid low, hasn't it, since that horrendous mini budget which sent mortgage rates soaring. You've also got a cost of living crunch and developers are building fewer houses you know i mean they're looking to protect their margins and that's not a surprise to anyone because more interest rate rises in the uk are expected with the us we've still seen these mixed indicators because we've got robust jobs and the expectation in the us is the fed will stick this time but we are expecting the bank of england to twist once again and you know, it's 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 a really interesting situation at the moment with um, the UK housing market because clearly people are incredibly concerned about mortgage payments. People are thinking maybe they can't afford to get on the housing ladder or they're shifting to, you know, 35-year-plus mortgage terms in order to try and make things affordable. At the same time, because of all this uncertainty and volatility, we have seen house prices fall. So um, we had some figures out from the Halifax, which showed that we're down 1% compared to a year ago. Now, that's the first drop since 2012, according to the Halifax. So typical house prices down 3000 on a year ago, down 7500 on the August peak. But you are still talking about ridiculously high prices. I mean, the average UK home still costs £286,532, down slightly compared to a month ago. But this is a really interesting sector to watch for and one that a lot of people do keep a really close eye on when you're thinking about um, those sort of recession signals. But I think what we're seeing at the moment is people really trying to deal with cost of living pressures increased mortgage cost pressures and of course as a knock-on you've got house builders dialing back and the issue with house builders dialing back on the number of homes that they built is that then increases demand and sends house prices back up again so it feels like we're in sort of a never-ending cycle with no end of affordable housing in place so I think for a lot of people really struggling to get are on the housing ladder at the moment, the fact that house prices are coming down a bit will be something that they're really excited to hear. But the fact that house builders are slowing the number of homes that they are building will be something that they won't want to hear. And of course, you know where this is heading, don't you? This will be the government to come up with some yet another scheme to to prop up the, the property market um, and get people all excited again. And of course, that'll push up prices again. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a never-ending sort of spiral of uh, um, 
activity of the property market. Hey, that's that's why it's all our, our sort of favourite talking point, isn't it? Over the the dinner parties and stuff with the, with the weather and property prices. <laughs> Property prices, mortgages at the moment, those are the key things. But I'll tell you what, I have had uh, a lot of people um, asking me about these cyber attacks, which have seen um, a Russian gang called Klopp basically hacking into um, a, a, a site which um, delivers software called Move It and, and effectively provides um, backroom um, activities for staff um, at the likes of BBC, British Airways and Boots doing things like payroll data. And it's what's called, and I love some of these terms when you get into tech, it is called a zero day vulnerability, which effectively means that when this attack happens, the company is put back to day one. They didn't know it was there. So they had no idea of how to uh, how to fix it. Um, Microsoft had said uh, when we first heard about this massive hack that it looks like this Russian group Klopp was to blame um, based on some of the techniques that had been used. We have now had confirmation. Um, It's a post which um, the BBC has reported saying this is announcement to educate companies who use Progress Move It products. Seriously, broken English. But effectively, they have all of this really important data to do with people's payroll. So you've got national insurance, you've got bank details in some cases, the BBC say not them, but you've also got, you know, addresses, all that kind of stuff, which can, you know, make you, first of all, incredibly vulnerable. So people have been told to, if they're in this situation, to keep an eye on their own accounts, but also can then be the subject of of scams and frauds. It's it's a really interesting one because normally when you have this kind of um, attack, you would see hackers effectively ransoming the information. So they would go to the company and they would hold this data for ransom until they got paid, and then they would unlock it and let you know people get back on with their lives. But it seems that in this case, there is such a huge amount of data which has been associated with this, that they've maybe been unable at the moment to, to figure out quite what to do with it. So I think we we know that companies now more than ever are hyper aware of the dangers of cybercrime. They're spending a lot of money on making sure that their, their backroom works are as secure as possible. But we also know that people are thinking about, you know, cutting costs and using a another provider to to give these kind of services like like payroll is something which a lot of people are doing but potentially hundreds of companies have had their data taken here so uh, i think this is something that is absolutely going to run and run well given we've got all this stuff on the headlines of the news um you know if it's not cybersecurity um hacking mortgages you know cost of living crisis uh, you know, it's going to be something else, but I wonder whether anyone's actually had any time to sort of turn off this noise and just open a book, sit there quietly and enjoy it. Or do you think those days are over? Uh, I really like um, that switch off moment before bed where you read something utterly cotton woolly, you know, just utterly, completely switch your mind off. Um I know one of our colleagues, Russ Smold, has a, a stack of um, 
books by the bed, which are, you know, financial tomes, uh, which seem brilliant. And I'd love to admit to that. But no, I, I'm a, not quite a bonk buster, but certainly sort of a thriller um, just to, to keep me going. But do you still read a lot or? Well, I, I read a lot less because I used to do most of my reading on the commute to work. Um, and because I'm not working uh, every day in the office anymore, I'm reading less. I just I've just been on holiday for a week, and I and I did plow through a whole book, and it was very satisfying. Um, but I, I I guess I guess we should we should explain the reason why that we are talking books on yeah. this, on the podcast now. <laughs> well, books are a big business, you know, and certainly during the pandemic, we saw the number of book sales absolutely shoot through the roof because people had more time in their hands and they rediscovered their love of reading. But as you say, you know, we've we've all gone back to work. Some people are back in the office. Some people are, are working differently. So I wonder how much book sales have been impacted by the fact that, you know, people maybe aren't commuting in the same way. Um, you have been chatting to Nigel Newton, CEO of Bloomsbury Publishing, to find out what is going on with book sales at the moment. So, Nigel, why do you think book sales have stayed strong since the pandemic? Because I know there's been quite a few industries where they saw a boom and, and sort of demand has sort of tailed off in sort of the last year or so. Well, I think that um, the pandemic, uh, uh, which was, of course, a very sad occasion with millions of people dying around the world, nevertheless had this shining ray of light, which was people's rediscovery of books. And, um, and, and the answer to your question must be that they, they liked their rediscovery and they wished to continue uh, with this new, uh, newly acquired or reacquired habit. Because let's face it, everybody has to read books when they're a student or a child and a student, and then people, in in some cases, drift away. But they drifted back due to their desperation uh, whilst incarcerated at home in lockdown, and they and they liked it. Um, um, Martin Amos, who died uh, sadly a few weeks ago, uh, I saw a wonderful quote from him of, well people read books because they enjoy doing it. Why else would they keep on doing it? And um, I think that's what's happened on a bigger scale post the pandemic. So obviously, you, as a business, you're catering to the, to the general public and to an academic audience. Isn't it? That's correct, isn't it? It, it absolutely is, yes. So, so I, mean, what, what, I mean, what's the long-term strategy for Bloomsbury? Is it simply to publish great books for uh, sort of the consumer side and to give academic uh, market the, the information they need? Or, or do you have to sort of be, you can't just sort of rely on just having, you know, a, a good book schedule. You've got to be more innovative as a business. Well, that's right. And I think our uh, success in recent years has uh, been a combination of external factors and internal strategy. And I think we have got the strategy uh, right. Uh, it, first of all, at one level, in publishing academic books as well as general books, that is highly unusual in our industry. 
and yet it's highly logical. Almost all of the overheads are the same for both of them. So um, I would say that it's a, uh, the delivery of that strategy has made a big difference to the fortunes of Bloomsbury. Um, uh, the, the other thing is that we have focused particularly in terms of our long-term strategy on increasing the sales of a, a particular part of our activity, which is called Bloomsbury Digital Resources. And we fixed a target to achieve a further 50% uh, in sales growth and 30% and uh, in margin growth in the five years starting from uh, from this year. In the consumer division, our priority is to uh, discover and champion high quality authors and illustrators and looking at ways to uh, leverage their rights and to grow our key authors through effective publishing. Um, and, and then thirdly is the originating publisher of Harry Potter to ensure that new children discover and read it for pleasure every year. Uh, to give you an example of how we're doing that, uh, this awesome, we will release the first ever Harry Potter almanac, um, which is keenly awaited. Um, our third strategic priority is our international expansion. Our international sales, or let's put it this way, sales outside of the UK market are 73% of the total. So we're looking to expand that further and to reduce our reliance on the UK market. Can you just tell me a bit more about the um, the sort of the digital resources stuff? Is this uh, sort of offering, sort of, for example, like online research services for for people perhaps at university? Um, and it, it, what, how is this sort of slightly different to simply just reading um, an electronic form of a book? Well, let me give you an example with one of our most successful. Uh, of our 36 online uh, platforms uh, called Drama Online. So this not only has uh, the text of thousands of plays published by our competitors as well as by us, we have license arrangements, but we also have hundreds of hours of, um, of performances uh, that are recorded uh, and streamed uh, through our site and they come from the National Theatre, the Globe Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and so on. So how does this give a student a better experience? If he or she is studying Macbeth, uh, they can watch three different productions of Macbeth from some of the greatest theatres in the world to learn how uh, the words have been interpreted by actors and directors over the generations. So it's the, the, the rich media content uh, conjoined with uh, the, the, the texts of what you describe rightly as ebooks um, that make these attractive. I mean, what are the sort of the key challenges 
to you as a business now, you know, what sort of things keep you awake at night? Is it like ever increasing print costs, for example? The issues for us are are really the macroeconomic issues. How is the world doing? And we, we suffered grievously as everybody else has from the war in Ukraine, not only because it's wrong, but because it's fouled up uh, supply channels of books printed in the Far East and, and put up prices due to uh, oil and gas becoming more expensive for all the transportation and carriage that's involved in getting a book to the marketplace. So it's been uh, very difficult. But um, from a business point of view, uh, I think we've been incredibly adaptive and flexible and have uh, cracked every one of those problems, which in some cases has meant putting our prices up. It's also meant um, starting the production of a book much earlier than we used to, two or three months earlier, so that if there are blips in the supply chain, we can still meet the original dates due to starting earlier. Are you uh, sort of reliant on a handful of sort of blockbuster titles for on the sort of, on the sort of the, the consumer side of your business each year to sort of drive earnings, or um, do you find that your, your your sort of profits are being generated across a very broad spread of, of books? Well, I think um, Bloomsbury is a portfolio of portfolios. So yes, uh, hits, bestsellers are very important to us in the consumer side of our business. But what we've done by starting around 12 years ago, the, the academic division, which is now one of the biggest and most successful parts of our company, is to counterbalance the uh, consumer-based market uh, by having a, 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 an institutionally-based market as well on the academic side. So they have completely different forms of funding and, uh, and buying patterns uh, and even margins. So they're incredibly complementary. And just finally, I mean, you mentioned about Harry Potter and, and I guess um, ask ask the average person on the street about Bloomsbury Publishing, and the, the association would naturally be to Harry Potter. Um, I, I mean, it's it's clearly been you know an, an absolute success for you, um, and you say you've got your plans to keep the sort of the, the brand alive for a new generation. I mean, is it possible to put a single figure on how much money you've made from that title over the years? Um, if only I knew that figure. Uh, the fact is that we don't. Uh, break it out because it's essentially confidential information between us and and one author. But I think that, um, and that applies to our other authors as well. <clears throat> but I think the the good fortune of Bloomsbury <clears throat> is that having been the lucky ones who didn't say no and who made the discovery of the sheer vastness of the markets for the wonderful books of J.K. Rowling that we've um, also discovered a second major author in Sarah J. Mass, and she has 15 novels uh, behind her now and goes immediately to number one all over the world. So we've been lucky twice. 
But but having said all that, we've um, we've been successful at counterbalancing the the volatility with the steady, predictable, high margin publishing of the academic and special interests division. So that's Nigel Newton there from Bloomsbury Publishing, and that's it for this week's podcast. Do hit the subscribe button and so you don't miss another episode. And please leave us a review or get in touch on social media of our email. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Laura Souter. We're going to assess the latest UK jobs data and GDP figures. Plus, Dan, I know you're going to be chatting with Barry Norris from Argonaut Capital about free lunch investing. There we go. That's one for you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.